Hello, Las Vegas. Hello, Las Vegas. Uh, that show before me has been going on for like, what, 22 years? Man, talk about some consistency. This is Thomas Moscow, Las Vegas criminal lawyer, former chief deputy district attorney. You're listening to the Dread Law Show. Uh, this is episode three. And we talk about all things law. You know, I was a former prosecutor here in Las Vegas for about a better part of a decade. I've been doing private criminal defense and private practice and civil law for the past couple of years. And uh, here we are just kind of educate people on what's going on and uh, talk about some things. I don't know about everybody else out there, but I've been feeling a lot of momentum lately. A lot of momentum uh, moving in the right direction and... You know, the key is just to keep it going because every time I'm feeling good momentum in my life, whether that's, um, you know, being in shape or eating right or getting stuff done, you know, something always comes up. You go on a vacation, some friends come in town, and it's like starting from zero again, starting from zero. So for everybody tuning in, welcome to the Dreadlaw Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Thomas Moskal. And uh, I don't know if everybody knew what was going on here in Vegas yesterday or really everywhere. Um... I'm going to cut the music. Anytime, Numbchuck. Yeah. That's a little Dread, uh, Judge Dread soundtrack that we found. Um, and that's what the show's named after. And speaking of Judge Dread, yesterday was Free Comic Book Day. I had never knew what Free Comic Book Day was. But um, apparently once a year, every year, and I think it's May 6th, uh, all the comic book companies, they send comic books to all the comic book stores and they're free comic books. And you go up there and it's a big event. And I went to two different comic book stores yesterday with my four-year-old son. And uh, the first one, you know, they had people here in Vegas. There's Critical Care Comics. And these are people, they dress up in superhero uh, costume and they go uh, visit, you know, the people who are in real bad shape. Those kids that are in real bad shape, they show up as Spider-Man, as Wolverine, as Thor. And, um, you know, they're always taking donations for their cause. And they're doing a real good thing. And my son was just, I mean, he dressed up as Spin, which is the new Spider-Man, Miles Morales. And we went to the first comic book store and they had a Jedi with a real looking lightsaber uh, that he was stoked to see. They had uh, the new Spider-Man who's going to have an adamantium spikes on his head. That's the new Spider-Verse movie coming out uh, next uh, next month, I believe. And, you know, it's just amazing. Marvel's really been trying to push Spider-Man hard because they feel like that's the flagship character. And they had given it away to Fox Studios years and years ago. That's why Fox would make a, a really pretty bad Spider-Man movie every few years. That's the way they kept the IP. And they finally struck a deal with Marvel over the past few years. So Marvel's brought it back in. And you know what? They're right. My son loves Spider-Man. So we went to the first comic book place. We stood in line. We got five free comic books. Uh, bought a couple things, uh, took some pictures, and then we went to the second comic book store. The first one was Maximum Comics here in Las Vegas over off Fort Apache. And, you know, the owner over there, just what a sweet guy, man. I'm glad that we stopped in there and got to know him. And if you need comic books on the west side of Vegas, Maximum Comics is pretty much the place to go. Uh, the other comic book stores are on the east side of Vegas. So we went to Cosmic Comics, and uh, that place was huge. And there, there we had Thor... Uh, Wolverine, my son took a picture. We saw Thor eating a donut. My, my son just thought it was hilarious to watch Thor eating a massive donut, just crushing it down. Um, Black Adam was there. Uh, who else was over there? Uh, they were doing some trivia, some giveaways, uh, but it was a fun time, man. And, um, I used to be in com- into comic books as a kid, and I'm trying to get back into them now. Uh, I really felt like it brought out my creative side, and I want my son to be into it. So I'm trying to get him involved. And, 
Uh, like I said, this show is the Dread Law Show, and is named after Judge Dredd, who was a comic book character. Uh, made a couple movies. Sly Stallone played him in 95. They did a remake in 2012 with Carl Urban. And, you know, the thing about Judge Dredd is this dystopian universe, uh, which uh, these judges are like Judge Dredd. He's, he's what they call a street judge. And let me know what you think about this. But the street judge is judge, jury, and police officer all rolled into one and executioner. And the whole point is they overthrew the U.S. Constitution in about the year 2070. So about 50 years from now, they said, get rid of the Constitution. And uh, crime was rampant. And so they got rid of these. uh, They avoid all the lengthy legal battles of bringing somebody to justice. I mean, you're tried and sentenced on the spot right there. So if you've ever watched those Dread Law movies, you know, Judge Dredd, he, he imposes a sentence and he actually offers plea deals. Why well, after he's found them guilty of whatever, he goes, look, you can put your gun down now and I'll give you life in prison. That's the deal. And if you have 20 seconds to take it. And if you don't, well, it's the death penalty. And he imposes it with his gun called the lawgiver. And so that's the namesake of this show. And uh, one thing about Judge Dredd in that universe is, I was rewatching the 2012 version with Carl Urban recently, and they find the guy who's the killer, and this other judge says, I'm 99% sure he's the guy who did it. And Judge Dredd says, well, we cannot convict and sentence unless we're 100%. So it's a little bit different from what we see here in uh, society now, where it's just beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and I know a lot of people, they have problems with this whole um, idea that the link, uh, the legal system takes too long. Justice delayed is justice denied, but the wheels of justice turn ever so slowly. And we know that's the truth. And I know that's the truth. One of the reasons I left being a prosecutor was, uh, you know, the cases that I had, they just went on forever. And it just seemed like I could not get them to close. I couldn't get justice to the victims of the families. I couldn't get closure. And the only way to do it was really to offer a plea deal. Um, for early closure, which brings me to, you know, what might be the um, one of the biggest uh, stories in uh, Las Vegas over the past week was a uh, Las Vegas Raider Henry Ruggs. You know, he got a deal and the news was reporting all over it and they're saying it's a pretty good deal. And I was interviewed by some of the news agencies and I have to agree it is a pretty good deal for Henry Ruggs uh, and a lot of people are upset about it. And a lot of people are upset about the Henry Ruggs deal because of the way the news is portraying it. Uh, because plea deals get a bad rap. So let me tell you, this: what Henry Ruggs was a Las Vegas Raider, um, had a very promising future as a wide receiver out here uh, in the NFL. He was deadly. He was a deadly wide receiver, and it became deadly on the streets. He was DUI one night. He was driving 156 miles an hour. He rear-ended Tina Tentor. She died. Her dog died. And uh, the case has been going on ever since. And it's been about almost two years since that happened. And so earlier this week, he waved up on a deal. And when you wave up on a deal in Las Vegas, what that means is basically you have a right to what we call a preliminary hearing. And a preliminary hearing is in the bottom court, the justice court. So there's two court levels. So district court is the top court. That's where you're going to be set for jury trial. That's the judge that's going to sentence you. But you got the bottom court is justice court. That's where your court, that's where your case um, starts. 
And so he was still in justice court after two years. And there's been a lot of reports on the delays in that case, why he hadn't even ascended to what I call big boy court. Uh, and so when he waived, what he did is he waived his right to a preliminary hearing. And all a preliminary hearing is, is a hearing in front of a judge is similar to a trial. Uh, the prosecutor has to come and bring, put on some evidence, but they're not putting on all their evidence. The only thing they need to prove to that judge at the preliminary hearing is that there is probable cause that you committed the crime. Probable cause is the same thing police need to arrest you. It just means more likely than not you committed the crime based on the evidence. And there's relaxed rules of evidence down there. You don't have to bring in every single witness. And what I used to tell people is basically a preliminary hearing is just for us to show the judge below that we're not making this up. That what's written on these reports, there is some evidence to back it up, okay? Because really all the Justice Court preliminary hearing is, it's a gatekeeping function because we don't need cases that don't can't even be proven to probable cause to be set for jury trials because there's already way too many jury trials set if you ask the judges and you ask the, the criminal system. They don't have the resources to try all these cases. And so he was still down at that level after two years, which is a long time. Which is a long time. Uh, but they were contesting things. Uh, they had filed several motions uh, and then appealed the lower court's ruling on those motions. And uh, finally, last week, it was out of the blue. He was supposed to have his preliminary hearing on May 4th, which is Star Wars Day, come to find out. Uh, May the 4th be with you is what they say. Uh, um but May 2nd, all of a sudden, there was something on calendar. He comes into court, and his attorneys say he's unconditionally waiving his preliminary hearing, and here's the deal. He's pleading to one count of DUI resulting in death, and both parties are going to stipulate, meaning they agree, to a sentence of 3 to 10 years. And then he's also agreeing to a misdemeanor vehicular manslaughter charge, which I really don't even understand why that charge was thrown in. Uh, at all. I don't get it. I and mean, I would have been the guy who was actually prosecuting rugs had I still been with the DA's office here in Vegas. And I've never thrown in a vehicular manslaughter charge in the mix with um, a DUI death ch- count. Here's the way it works. And the reporters were asking me this. They were like, why are they why are they dismissing the reckless driving counts? Why are they dismissing the misdemeanor gun count? And I'll tell you why. If you got a guy charged with first degree murder and he got him charged with robbery, and he got him charged with battery, and he got him charged with some misdemeanors. The only thing you're really focused on as a prosecutor or as an attorney is the, the first-degree murder charge. Everything else will be dismissed. I mean, you could tag him with a few extra crimes, but really you're pursuing the top charge. And the top charge in this case was DUI resulting in death. And so you get that charge, you dismiss everything else. The penalty range on DUI death is 2 to 20 years. So he got what we call 3 to 10 years. Well, people think it's low. And I went on the news and I said, look, it is on the low end of what we see happening in this courthouse on DUI death cases. It is. But there's reasons why it was negotiated there. And I'll tell you what, I had some DUI death cases when I was at the DA's office that I did negotiate to three years on the bottom is what we call it. And so let me explain that bottom top thing real quick. So three years on the bottom, he's got 10 years on the top. What does that mean? It means he's got a 10-year prison sentence he's agreeing to. But he's going to be eligible for parole at three years. Okay. And the bottom number is what matters to a defendant, especially in a DUI case, especially on a guy that doesn't have criminal history. He's going to most likely parole out at that number. So he's not too concerned with the top end, but it's really a 10 year prison sentence eligible for parole after three. Now, in some states, they just, they just pronounce the sentence. They say, they say, look, he's sentenced to 10 years. 
And then next thing you know, the guy's out in three and everybody was wondering why. So there's been this movement in the country uh, of truth in sentencing. So the judges have to pronounce not only the prison sentence, but also when is he going to be eligible, eligible for parole? In Nevada, we have what's called a 40 percent rule. That means you have to be eligible for parole at least at 40 percent of your sentence. What that means is on a crime where you have a two to 20 year penalty range, the maximum that a judge could give you is 20 years. But the maximum you would have on your bottom end, your parole date would be eight because eight is 40 percent of 20. And, you know, if you get a 10 year sentence. It has to be at least four. So the maximum a judge could have given rugs on a 10 year sentence is four. But all parties are agreeing to make his bottom number three. The other thing that's part of the plea deal is this is it's conditional. So this is what we call in the business a stipulated three to ten. It's a conditional plea. And it's a conditional plea, meaning the judge has to follow these negotiations, the recommendations. If the judge decides that, no, Ruggs should be getting more time, I'm going to give him more. Well, Ruggs gets to withdraw his plea, and then he he gets to go ahead and proceed to trial as if he had not pled guilty at this point. And the only thing he's lost is he's he's already waived his preliminary hearing, and now he's in big boy court set for trial. And they can litigate this thing, and they can do everything that they need to do. So, look, it's a good sentence for Ruggs because DUI death sentencing is 2 to 20 years, but the same crime is DUI death or substantial bodily harm. So that 2 to 20-year penalty range applies to non-death cases too. So when you're seeing cases in that 2, 3, 4 on the bottom range— you're usually looking at people who are hurt, not killed. But there are some death cases that get negotiated that low. And there's a reason in this case to do it. And before we get into the legal reasons why, number one, look, it's been two years. The guy's out of custody. Give the family some closure. Bring bring a case uh, to complete closure. You get the guilty plea. He's waiving a lot of his appeals. This thing's not going to be reversed here. Uh you know, 10 years from now, it's not going to be, oh, we reversed the conviction. He's waived a lot of his appeals. So you're getting closure on that end. And believe me, that's worth its weight in gold because there was a famous case here in Las Vegas back in, I think, 99 is when the incident happened. Jessica Williams, uh, she just recently, a couple years ago, I had to handle the case after it got reversed by a federal court. But she got her conviction uh, reversed 20 years after the fact. And now she doesn't have those convictions on her record. I'm the prosecutor had to call all those families and go, look. A federal judge decided to reverse these convictions 20 years after the fact, and we're not retrying this case. We're not. It's 20 years old. The evidence is stale. We probably don't even have the blood evidence anymore, and she's already done her time. So now she's done her time, and she doesn't have the convictions. You think that's an isolated case? No. This is what happens when you don't get guilty, please. Margaret Rudin, the Black Widow, uh, she killed Ron Rudin, allegedly. Uh, she was tried and convicted at trial back in, I think, I think maybe 2003, 2004. It was a while ago. She did her time. Her conviction was just recently reversed. She does not have a murder conviction on her record anymore. Are they trying Margaret Rudin again? No, she's already done her time. And it was a, it was a hard to prove case that back then, 20 years ago. It's definitely hard to prove now. I really delve deep into that because, uh, you know, I got tapped to be on the show Blood and Money, uh, and, 
It was by the producers of Dick Dick Wolf, the Law and Order guy. They were doing uh, real real Law and Order. It's Blood and Money. Dun dun. They even got the hammer in there. I didn't even know I was part of such a professional production, but they did uh, a story on on Margaret Rudin. So I got very well acquainted with it. And that's not the only cases I was a prosecutor that I saw reversed years after the fact. So that's one reason. Give the family closure and have the case closed. Okay, so we're done litigating Henry Ruggs if he pleads guilty. Number two is, look, you're getting prison time on the guy. The guy's not getting probation. He's going to go do some time. So you're actually having some punishment. And, you know, the families aren't left in a lurch going, why is this guy out of custody? Why does this case keep going on? Um, but let's get to the real reason. Because this is the thing that the news doesn't want to report on. And this is the thing that uh, a lot of people don't want to accept. But when we're in the criminal justice system as prosecutors and defense attorneys, we've created this false economy. This false economy, meaning what our case is worth, what are cases worth in forms of punishment and how much prison time should a guy get? What kind of crime should the guy have to plead to? Is this worth him having a felony conviction? Should he be able to do probation and end up with a misdemeanor? Uh, and just think about it. Uh, look, you can charge a guy with a felony battery. Uh, if someone has gets hurt and maybe their skin gets cut open, they have to have stitches. You could charge them with a battery, substantial bodily harm. But if the guy has no criminal history and maybe there's a little bit of a self-defense claim going on in this fight, maybe you just plead him to a misdemeanor battery on it. That's what it's worth. Right now, take that same crime. A guy has zero defense at all. He has a bunch of criminal history and he beats somebody with his fist so hard, breaks their bones, all kinds of stuff. Right. Well, that case is worth more. Well, we look at DUI death cases the same way. What is this DUI death case worth? Now, normal people aren't going to be able to think about a crime that way. They're not going to be able to look at a crime and say, well, that's not the way it should be. What, why are these attorneys and judges thinking about what are cases worth? Well, you have to have some kind of value system in order to plea cases down. And how do you know what a case is worth? Well, you look at what a judge would normally give a guy, right? So if that's what the normal sentence is on a case, you kind of have a baseline of what it's worth. And then it starts going up or down depending on issues in the case, a guy's criminal history, and issues in the case is a big one. Because anytime you set a case for trial and you go into a jury trial, as an attorney, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't. You could have the strongest case in the world, and all of a sudden two witnesses are all of a sudden no-shows. You thought they would be there for trial, and now they're not, and you needed them to prove the case. Guess what your case just became? Unprovable. Unprovable. And you found that out right there in the middle of the trial. Proof issues is another one. You know, let's... Let's think about uh, in a case where you have two guys fighting, you know, self-defense claim. Look, as you know, prosecutors have to value a case that way. So in a DUI death case, you know, what do we have to prove here? We have to prove Henry Ruggs was driving. That wasn't going to be a problem. You have to prove that a death happened. That wasn't going to be a problem. But you also got to prove that he's DUI. The problem in these, and that was going to be a problem here, a problem that the prosecutors did not want to have to get to. Now, the normal person says, how could he, how could that be a proof issue? He was over the legal limit. I think he was twice the legal limit or something like that. Okay, on that test. But is that test going to be admissible at trial? And that's what this case really came down to. Henry Ruggs' case was plagued by a faulty search warrant application. And everybody that paid attention to this case who was an attorney knew that. They had already litigated it once. They filed a motion to suppress in front of Judge Zimmerman, and Judge Zimmerman denied that, meaning the blood results would be admissible. But remember what I talked about? We got a little boy court. We got big boy court. All right, this down in little boy court. 
So you got a justice of the peace saying it's admissible. And a lot of attorneys in the community felt like she legally got that wrong because the search warrant application here was just so uh, bereft of anything that would justify law enforcement sticking a needle into somebody's arm and taking their blood. Well, they were litigating it again. The motion to suppress was about to be heard on May 4th in front of Judge Letizia. So they were, it was going to be heard a second time. Now, if a judge rules that this thing is excluded, what happens to the state's case against Henry Ruggs for DUI? It's gone. It's gone. You can't prove that he was under the influence. Because in big, fatal collisions like Henry Ruggs, when they're massive collisions and all parties involved are going to the hospital, this isn't like a misdemeanor DUI where you get pulled over on the highway for speeding and they get you out of the car and now you're stumbling around on camera and you're slurring your words and they're smelling alcohol on your breath. And no, it's not like that. You know why? Because the driver's immediately carted off to the hospital. You're not going to do field sobriety tests. I'll tell you, I had a case one time where a guy, he, he ran a red light, he smashed into this old lady's car, T-boned her, killed her, and he was hurt bad from the accident. He was hurt bad. I know this because he's on body camera screaming in pain. And Nevada Highway Patrol <laughs> gets this guy out of his car and has him do what we call the walk and turn test, where they're walking and they got to maintain their balance, has him do the one leg stand test. Every time this guy takes a, a step, He's screaming in pain. Ah, he can barely stand up. Ends up, I checked his medical records. He goes to the hospital. He's got broken hips, fractured hips, fractured femur, everything. Okay. And they write up in their arrest report, failed field sobriety tests. And I thought to myself, well, that's just great. You know, a guy with two broken legs and a broken hip, he can't walk, do the walk and turn in the one leg stand. What kind of evidence is that for me to present at a trial? You know, what I was telling them was, look, you go get the blood test. That's how we have to prove these cases. When someone's hurt in an accident, a driver, and he's going to be the defendant, we need the test results. Okay. I'm not going to be able to tell a jury that the guy's balance is off when he's got broken bones and he's going into surgery. Yet that is what you're left with when you don't have a blood result. You have to prove it old school. We call it an impairment case. You got to prove his ability to drive is impaired. So what kind of evidence are you going to show to to prove that Henry Ruggs was impaired. Was there bad driving? Well, look, the guy was going 156 miles an hour in a 45. But does that indicate impairment? No, that indicates somebody's driving really, really fast. Impaired driving evidence? Good evidence of that is you're weaving all over the road. Your lights are out. You didn't even know your lights were out. You know you didn't turn your headlights on. Uh, you ran a stop sign. Um, those kinds of things are good evidence of impairment as far as impaired driving goes. When you get somebody out of the car, how, how's their balance issues? Are they able to slur, you know, are they slurring their words? But you're not going to have that in the Henry Ruggs case. So when you're left with the possibility as a prosecutor that your blood results are going to be tossed by a judge and you're looking at the search warrant and you're saying, I've never seen a more suppressible search warrant uh, application in my career as a prosecutor, or criminal defense attorney. Man, this is something where you might need to offer a plea deal and you might need to adjust that value of the case. That's what we talked about earlier, right? That value of the case is lower, okay? Because the only way you entice a defendant into taking a plea deal is by showing leniency, right? Going lower than what the value of the case is. And here he got a three to 10. 
And so a lot of people are jumping up and down about it. But the fact is the search warrant was a cognizable issue. It was a huge issue. No prosecutor would want to go to court and actually litigate that issue. Okay. So you find the sweet spot. Number two, a lot of people look at Henry Ruggs as, look, there's two counts of DUI, one of substantial bodily harm and one of death. The substantial bodily harm count was what I call a throwaway count. It was his passenger. It was his girlfriend. And I'll be honest, her injury wasn't that bad. I think it was maybe a hairline fracture in her wrists. You know, don't quote me on that, but that's the word on the street. Regardless, she didn't want prosecution. She actually hired her own attorney to try and block the state from having medical records. So what is she going to do when she gets on the stand? She's going to say, I wasn't hurt that bad, right? And the jury's going to go, does that qualify as substantial bodily harm? Probably not. If the witness is coming up here saying it, I didn't get hurt at all. So really you're left with one count of DUI death. And that's what he's pled to. So it's how much time is he going to get? So three to 10 years, it's on the low end, but it is completely justified by the huge looming search warrant issue, as well as the fact that, like I said, anytime you set a case for trial, you're taking a chance. I'll give you a case in point. I had a case set for trial. We're picking a jury that day, and it was a DUI felony case on someone who had like five or six DUIs in her past. So she's looking at prison time. And it's a misdemeanor uh, DUI, except for the fact that she has so many priors. So all I need is a cop that came and pulled her over, uh, maybe the witness that called 911, and then the nurse that drew her blood, and then the chemist. Okay, well, I definitely need the nurse who drew her blood. If I can't get the nurse who drew her blood into court, I can't prove the case. And guess what the nurse tells me to do as we're picking a jury? She texts my, she turns her phone off, and she texts my uh, investigator, goes, kick rocks, I'm not coming, I don't feel good. And we can't get a hold of her. And it's going to be a one-day trial. Like, literally, I'm going to need her there in the courtroom in a couple of hours. So what happened to the value of my case? It went from this super provable case that I should have no problem doing to, I can't prove this case here. And what am I going to do? So I offered her a plea deal right there on the spot. Right there on the spot. And she took it. You know? And she ended up doing prison time. Five years eligible for parole after two, which was the minimum, given her history. That was the minimum sentence. And she took it. Uh... Now, if I could have proven that case, the judge we were in front of, a lot of judges give these recidivists a lot of time. They're going to end up with not being eligible for parole until four years, until five years. Uh, But that's how the value of a case works. And that's how DAs are always thinking right there. And you don't know what else was going on with the DA's case. I mean, the search warrant issue was looming heavily, heavily. uh, But were there other issues that they were facing behind the scenes? This is the thing the public doesn't know and a lot of defense attorneys don't know. And what kind of makes me kind of a deadly defense attorney out here is because I understand all of the concerns that a prosecutor has in their case. Um, and so, yeah, Henry Ruggs, he got the deal. People are mad about it. And I'll tell you what, the reporters don't even really want to talk about the search warrant issue that much. They don't. What, they're, what, what do they want to do? They want to make everybody mad. I mean, that's what the news agencies are doing all over the country. Make everybody mad. How can this privileged uh, NFL athlete with millions of dollars and he's got the high priced defense attorneys? Oh, he got the deal. He got the deal. But the poor people, you know, uh, the minorities, they're getting rougher deals than him. I mean, that's the way it's being portrayed out there, right? They don't want to talk about the search warrant issue. I try not to consume mass media. I can't stand it. You know, it's like all they're trying to do is rile you up. They don't want to give all the facts of the case. They don't want to give you the real deal. And so I'm telling you here, the deal was justified. That's not what you want to hear, but I'm telling you what is the reality on this, of the situation on the ground. And that's what citizens should want to know. What is the reality of the situation on the ground? Okay. 
The real story should be is, why was the search warrant application so problematic? And what can be done so this doesn't happen in future cases? Because you know where the search warrants always get bungled? It's on these huge cases. It's on the huge cases. The reason for that is it's chaos on the ground. You show up to an accident like Henry Ruggs where it's 156 miles an hour collision. Somebody's dead. The paramedics are coming. The coroner's being called. You're, you're blocking off traffic. You got 50 officers at the scene. The defendant, who you think is DUI, is being rushed off to the hospital. So you got another officer trying to trail him that way to try and conduct the investigation there. And so they're like, somebody get the search warrant. And in a DUI case, you have to rush and get the search warrant. You can't, you can't, it's not like searching somebody's house go, oh, we can do it tomorrow. Take your time on the search warrant. Make sure everything's right. It's like, no, we need to get this guy's blood in like the next hour. We need to get it definitely within two hours as fast as possible. So you dole this out to some rookie cop. I'm not going to say it's a rookie in this case, but let's just say some cop who's not really, really experienced in doing search warrant applications. They're intimidated by it because in a DUI, you don't get to type it out first. You call a judge on the phone. You call a judge. You go, sorry for waking you up, judge. My name is so-and-so. All right, I'm applying for a search warrant. And the judge is like, have a sleep light. All right, go ahead. And so you're already intimidated as an officer. And you're not even really involved in the investigation. Someone just called you, said, you get the search warrant. And you're like, well, I don't even know what's going on. So it's just chaos everywhere. And in these cases are the ones where the search warrant applications get messed up the most. These cases are the ones. My last case as a DA in the office was a case where five cyclists got killed out in searchlight. A guy who was super high on crystal meth just mowed them down. And they they bungled. They didn't even apply for a search warrant. They said, we don't have enough for a search warrant. Isn't that funny? They're out there. The guy mows down bicyclists. So he's not involved in a big collision. He is can't even stand up straight on his field sobriety tests and these officers go we don't even have enough to call a judge for a search warrant yet with the henry ruggs case they go all right now we have a guy who's involved in a violent collision let's call a judge on a search warrant but nothing was told to the judge about not even smelling alcohol on his breath right the only fact they relied on was the fact that there was a bad accident now some people out here might say well if there's a bad accident that should be enough for a search warrant well uh, maybe you call a judge and you say that, and definitely the judge who was called that night felt like it was enough for the search warrant based on the facts, approved it, and Judge Zimmerman ruled that it was enough on the first uh, go-around. But I'll tell you what, I have I have studied case law out throughout not only Nevada, definitely I'm an expert in Nevada law, but throughout the country. I have not seen any cases where a, mo- where a search warrant was challenged for a DUI blood draw, which this is the most invasive search you could have, is sticking a needle into your body. Isn't That's more so than searching your car. I'm going to stick a needle into your body and pull your blood out. There's not a case out there where someone has gotten a needle stuck in their body just based on just being in an accident. You're just in an accident. That's it. Nothing additional. Judge, can I put a needle in his body? And that that has been upheld by an appellate court. So that's why everybody was looking at this case as, look, if this thing really gets litigated, most likely an appellate court is going to frown upon this based on the cold law, cold legal analysis, law applied to fact. They're going to frown on it. And if they frown on it, well, you just lost the blood. And if you lost the blood, you just lost your DUI case. So now what is the guy facing? He's facing a reckless driving felony, which instead of two to 20 years, he's facing one to six years. It is probationable, meaning a judge could give him probation. On this case, they wouldn't. But what would his maximum sentence be on one count of reckless driving death? I'll tell you. 
six years eligible for parole at 28 months, two years, four months. So the deal struck here, the way they calculate the value on it is, look, I'm getting the DUI death charge. It's mandatory prison. And he's agreeing to more time. Instead of six, he's agreeing to 10. Instead of two and a half, two, two years, four months till parole, he's agreeing to three years till parole. And we have the DUI death conviction, which is big because once you're convicted of a felony DUI, for the rest of your life in Nevada and most states, most states, but Nevada, every DUI you get, whether it's 50 years from now, you got a clean record, 50 years from now, 5-0, you get pulled over because your registration's expired and then you happen to have alcohol in your breath and your DUI, guess what? It ain't a misdemeanor. Because of your DUI death conviction, you're facing mandatory prison. 15-year prison sentence, eligible for parole at two. So they have that. He's enhanceable for the rest of his life. They got the DUI conviction. And so I don't disagree with what happened in this case. I don't. And I and I really want everybody out here in Las Vegas to not look at the DA's office as Steve Wolfson and the DA who was handling the case to say, oh, they cut they cut uh, rugs a break. They did something wrong. You know, the fact is one of the reasons why I left the DA's office, because I was on so many high profile cases, I'm the one who's standing in court. With my hand on my junk, looking embarrassed, like, oh, I have to deal this case. We have all these issues in this case. I'm the one who has to talk to the victim to go, this is the reason why we're cutting the killer of your family member, uh, what you would consider a break. It's not law enforcement that has to do that. It's not witnesses in the case. Like, like I told you, that nurse who just told me to kick rocks on the day of a jury trial, she never has to answer for that. She never has to feel embarrassment for that. I'm the one sitting there in court dealing a case. The judge goes, why are you giving this recidivist such a good deal? And I can't even say it out loud right there or else the deal's not going to go through. And that's what you have to do as a prosecutor. So look, they, they're evaluating the case every which way that they can. And I'm sorry to say that you can't. I'll say it again. I said it last week. It's one of my favorite lines in, in law movies. Training day, Denzel Washington. It's not what you know. It's what you can prove, okay? And that's what that's what the attorneys are all looking at. And so Henry Ruggs, he's going to go through with the deal. Why? Because it's conditional. Most guilty pleas have this little clause in it where the, the judge will say, you know I can do whatever I want within my discretion. It's 2 to 20 years. I can give you 20 years if I want to. They can say that. Uh, but in this case, that's not really true because if the judge wants to give him more time, he'll be able to withdraw his plea and then proceed to trial as if the plea had not happened. Well, the judge wants closure too. The family wants closure. And wouldn't it be something if the judge goes, I think you should get more time, withdraw your plea. Then they file a motion to suppress in front of that judge. And then he suppresses the blood. (laughs) You know, so this is why judges need to kind of like listen to what the prosecutors and defense attorneys are doing and follow the deals. Because maybe that judge is not aware yet of the proof issues in the case. And they're looking at it just like some members of the public. He should be getting more time. So... That's the Henry Rugg situation, and he got a plea deal. And let me tell you, that's 99.9% of cases in the United States end up in plea deals. They have to. Our entire system here in America is based on plea negotiations. You can't try every case. You can't even try 10% of the cases. We simply do not have the resources out there. We don't. And plea deals get a bad rap. But you have to understand, plea deals are good not only for the defendants. They're also good for the prosecutors. They're also good for the families. I had cases where I couldn't get a guy to take a plea deal. Literally, the guy's been out of custody for seven years, still awaiting trial. 
Okay. How do you think the families feel in that case? Seven years of delays, seven years, just as delayed as justice denied. I'm sorry. You know, immediacy is what really, really rings true when you feel a sense of justice to have somebody put in jail right away and then a sentence imposed, he goes to prison. It happens quickly, not only to the family, but it's a sense of justice as to the defendant too. Like, not only am I going to have to go serve this time, but it happened right away. And that takes me back to the, the name of the show, Dread Law, the Dread Law Show, the street judges. They got rid of all these lengthy legal battles, right? You know, Judge Dredd would have showed up to the scene. Maybe this is what people want. Let's overthrow the Constitution like they did in the Judge Dredd universe. And let's have street judges show up to an accident like Henry Ruggs and go there and see, all right, take his blood right now. They'd analyze it right there on the spot, be like, he's over the limit. All right, you know what? You are a judged guilty. Uh, how do you plead? You plead not guilty. Well, you know what? It's a hundred percent conviction here. Here's my sentencing range. I'm going to sentence you to the max, but if you go ahead and just comply right now, I'll give you 80% of what the max is. And it's just done there right on the spot. Maybe that's what everybody would want. You know, let's throw the constitution out. Maybe the constitution's flawed. I mean, it was just, it's just a bunch of guys who put it together 250 years ago. Right. And they had no idea what it would grow into. Uh, you know, what was the original purpose of a search warrant back then? The original purpose of a search warrant was so, uh, you know, the king, the king just had their soldiers and officers just running up in people's houses and investigating crimes and getting them charged with whatever they could get them charged with. And then, uh, you know, putting them on trial and not even having it in front of a jury and just convicting people and throwing them into jail. That's what our founding fathers were concerned with. You know, just don't be running up in my house without reason, Right. Don't be running up in my house without a reason. So let's put a Fourth Amendment in there. We will not be subject to unreasonable searches and seizures. And did they ever have any idea that it would be grown out into what it's grown into today? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, but when you look at a lot of case-by-case -case basis, this is what a society of attorneys do. And look, I'm an attorney. I am. Uh, what I know is that we've spawned about three generations of attorneys, and all it's done is further complicate and convolute the law. When I went to law school, I thought, you know what? You do your legal research as an attorney, come up with the right answer, and the judge you appear in front of probably already knows what the right answer is. When I started practicing as a lawyer, I found out, you know what? You can do all the research you want. Um, a lot of questions haven't even been asked yet. It always seems like there's a new question to be asked. Like I said, they haven't even ever, no courts even considered the search warrant scenario that Henry Ruggs had. And then the judges don't know the right answer. That's what that's and what that grows into is more and more and more and more case by case scenarios. And it's just so complicated nowadays that you need a team of attorneys just to advocate on your behalf. Um, no, I'm Chuck. We're, we're on FM. We're on the FM radio now, right? 107.1. Yeah. FM 107.1. Uh, just let's do a station identification. 107.1, you know, is 1400 AM. Uh, also live on TikTok, Las Vegas criminal lawyer. If anybody wants to call in, join the discussion is 702-221-7283. Uh, on TikTok too, if you want to call in 702-221-7283. KSHP North Las Vegas, 107.1 FM, 1400 AM, K296HP North Las Vegas and online at KSHP.com. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Noam Chuck, for that. Uh, I thought I was doing a bit great in my radio voice, but, uh, yeah, so that's, um, those are the, that, that, that's the deal. Plea deals are good. Plea deal gives, gives us closure. Plea deals lets cases resolve. We have to have them. And 
All the attorneys are, are doing in there are negotiating. Okay. It's not about taking every case to trial. You remember, you know, you remember, um, I remember this long time. I think he, I think he passed away recently, but F. Lee Bailey, he was one of the OJ attorneys. He didn't even want to be, you know, he never even got paid from that case. <laughs> he did the cross examination of Mark Furman where he was just dropping N word like crazy on Mark Furman to paint Mark Furman as a racist. Well, F. Lee Bailey is a, um, F. Lee Bailey is a legend defense attorney, but I saw this interview of him. I think he might've been on the Johnny Carson tonight show with Johnny Carson, I think, but he was up there. He was smoking a cigarette and you know, he said, he goes, they, they asked him, how do you feel about using your skills to get people off of serious crimes? And he goes, you know what? There's only one time that I really got somebody off of a crime that should have gone down for it. And he was like, it was a murderer. But he said he begged and pleaded with the prosecutor in that case to cut a plea deal. So instead of first degree murder, they would deal it to second degree murder. And the prosecutor was like, no, 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 we're going to trial. And he said he begged the prosecutor, given the proof issues in the case, it was going to be a tough case to prove at trial to just come down. We can wrap it up on a guilty plea. And the prosecutor refused. And the guy got an NG, not guilty. And he walked out free. And F. Lee Bailey said, that's the only time. But that was a prosecutor who wanted the whole enchilada. Instead of just valuing the case where it needed to be valued, right? So that's a uh, that's how plea deals go down. And Henry Ruggs got one, and I'm here to tell you again, Henry Ruggs is justified in getting the plea deal that he got. Uh, if we were just going on the cold hard facts of the case on what we know, and we weren't thinking about what we were going to prove at trial and what might happen at trial and what might happen at appeal, yeah, I get it. All right, impose a harsher sentence, but we don't try people in the court of public opinion. That's not how the criminal justice system works, okay? And I handed out, I would say most of my cases as a DA ended up in plea deals. And the the thing I had to do as a prosecutor is try and get the family to be on board with what the plea deal was. To have them, yeah, I always said the same thing. I said, look, it's the state of Nevada that's prosecuting this guy. It's not your family, okay? That's what the civil courts are for if you want to sue. But when it comes to imposing criminal punishment, the government handles that and we're going to take what you want to happen into consideration. And I want you to be okay with what's happening. Most of all, I want you to understand the decision that's being made in this case as to what's going to happen at the end of this case. But at the end of the day, even if you don't agree with it, even if you don't understand it, you don't want to understand it. You're in complete disagreement. State of Nevada is going to do what state of Nevada is going to do. Okay. The obligation we have and not only legally, uh, under the state constitution, but also just morally is to keep you informed of what's going on in a serious case like this. Tell you what's happening. Tell you what our thinking and what our reasoning is. And for the most part, I think if you can establish trust with the family, uh, you can get them on board to really see what your thinking is. Um, some families, they, you know, they don't want to do it. They don't want to, they don't want to accept any of that. And I get that. You know, you lose somebody that's close to you and DUI death case, which is probably, as far as cases go, they're they're really tragic on both ends because no one goes out in a DUI case intending to have someone killed, right? And the person who ends up being the victim, it's just such an innocent victim. It's not like some of these other cases where the two parties kind of knew each other and that's why the situation came to what it was going to be. It's like you're just driving on the street. You know, I live over there in Summerlin and the case that goes through my head all the time was this old couple and they had pulled up to the stoplight at Sahara and Hualapai. 
man, it's right near my house. And they're sitting there at the red light. And it's about 7.30, I think. It was early evening. And man, they got rear-ended at such high speed, they died on impact. And when we prosecuted that case, we saw surveillance. The guy's over in this bar over downtown Summerlin. He's so drunk out of his mind, he just left his wallet and everything on the bar. He's with this girl that he's dating. He can barely walk. And the employees there were trying to stop him from getting into his car. They were trying. And he was just not going to be... uh he, he wasn't going to be stopped. And the employees were watching him drive out of there, and they knew something bad was going to happen. But I think about that old couple who was just sitting at the stoplight. You know, you don't think that, but just sitting at a stoplight, your life could get ended out here on these streets. And, you know, DUI, it's a scourge, and it needs to stop, but it's not going to. It's not going to. Sentencing people harsher is not going to stop DUI. Okay? We've been trying that for years. You know, Uber's great, but a lot of people don't want to spend $50 or it's even higher than that, $100 to get driven to where they're going to go and then drive home. They don't want to do that. I know that sounds horrible, but again, I'm not telling you what you want to hear. I'm telling you the reality of the situation on the streets. Okay. People don't want to pay that money. And so the only solution I see is public transportation. I mean, what's going on with the public transportation here in Nevada, in Las Vegas, in this growing city, it should be a priority. I'd love to see it. You know, I lived overseas. I lived in Amsterdam for a while. I lived in Singapore. I lived in Tokyo. I lived in Seoul, Korea. Uh, I, I was in Spain for a while. And all of these big cities around the world, it's like you would be a fool to even own a car. That's how good the public transportation is there. It's clean. Not only are there buses and are the buses safe and running timely and running all the time, but they have shuttles, they have subways, there's multiple, there's multiple ways to get around the city and it's quick. And I think if we have that, then we can really put a dent in what's going on with the DUI behavior in this country. But until then, um, things are just going to be doing what they're doing. And when you, if you get, uh, pulled over you know, you're going to, you're going to have some things you got to do and hopefully that changes your behavior. And if you end up hurting somebody or killing somebody, you're going to be going to prison and everyone's going to see it on the news. And, you know, I'm looking, I'm checking in on TikTok. Let me share some of these TikTok, uh, things. Uh, we have somebody calls in user of course he's anonymous he goes so how much is having white skin go for in the present criminal system you know that question is not really worded right uh i guess he's asking me how how much does white skin benefit a person in the system today i you know i really can't even answer i can't answer that question you know um I know that's that's a feeling on everybody out there. Look, there's systemic racism that exists in the American system. Um, not only in American system, it's other countries too. Uh, it's just kind of like in our DNA. So I can't put a number on how much that goes for you. Uh, sometimes it goes against you. I'll be honest. Sometimes it goes against you because there is this reversal of maybe we should go harder on them. But um, let me see who else is out there. Lola Melendez. I have, I do have a felony case. Hey girl, I don't know if I'd be putting that out on TikTok, uh, on my TikTok live that you got a felony case. I don't know if this is an anonymous account or not, but, uh, yeah, you know, look, it'll be a plea negotiation. I hope you got a good attorney. Cause look, I'll tell you, uh, 
most attorneys in the criminal defense world, you know, they didn't spend time as a prosecutor, so they don't understand what the prosecutors are doing. But when it comes to plea deals, what I'm saying, you have a value of a case, right? So your defense attorney should be trying to get your case for you way under what the value is. And the prosecutors are trying to get more for their cases uh, than what the value would be. And I know some people might take that the wrong way. Maybe I worded it wrong. But prosecutors are in the business of getting convictions if they can. And they will, you know, myself, when I was a prosecutor, uh, I always tried to look at the person whose case I was handling as a human being on the other side, because I have some life history. You know, I wasn't just a Boy Scout my whole life uh, and uh, just came up from this great upbringing. You know, I grew up in a certain way where I understand the realities of people who get involved in the system, the cycle that they're in. And so I tried to look at it that way and you have that power. But at the end of the day, let's take the Henry Ruggs case, for example, if I'm a prosecutor on that case, yeah, of course I don't want to give him three to 10 years, right? Because the facts of the case, he should be getting more time. So I'm going to try and do things in my power to see if I can get what is an appropriate sentence on him for the carnage that was involved. Uh, but when he's got a defense team that's sitting there and is poking holes in the case and is really making me question uh, the case going forward, I have to lower how much I'm going to get out of that case. And so that's Lola. That's what your defense attorney needs to do is to plead on your behalf. And sometimes it's not about proving the case. I'll tell you this. A lot of attorneys, when I was a prosecutor, I learned there was only maybe two times in my career that a defense attorney actually came to my office, said, hey, can I come by and talk to you? And I'm like, oh, Lord, here he go. he's going to come in and beg on behalf of his client. He's going to beg because I got his client. Like, proof-wise, this open, shut case. And the guy comes in, and he sits in my office for 30 minutes and tries to get to know me and schmooze me. And the, all the while, I'm just gearing myself to, up to say, N-O, no, right? But he really made a pitch on behalf of his client. And I took notes because I said, hey, I don't see anybody doing this. Sometimes all they do is send in an email. Sometimes all they do is maybe make a phone call. Sometimes they just receive the email from me and go, all right, that's what we'll do. They don't even try to advocate on the behalf of their clients. So when I get a case, uh, I have no problem. And maybe it's because I know all the prosecutors downtown. I'm on first name basis. I have no problem saying, hey, I want to come by the office. Or I see them at court and go, hey. Let me come by your office real quick and talk to them for 20 or 30 minutes about your case, about who you are as a person. I'm telling you, no one does that. They might call over and go, hey, my client's a real good guy. But I'm talking about, let me get some pictures of you. Let me get some information on you, your family dynamic. You know, are you, are you a single mother with a one-year-old at home? Let me bring this to the prosecutor's attention for real uh, and see if I can get them to budge because your case is totally provable against you. Uh, you know, I hope you have an attorney that's willing to do that extra amount for you. But what happens is a lot of attorneys out there do high volume practices and they're not trying to spend time on your case like that, especially plead on your behalf. So um, we had one other comment said, uh, awesome nerd reporter wishing well to Maggie Thatcher at taking office. OK, I have no idea what that means. Margaret Thatcher, something like that. So anyways, I'm Las Vegas criminal lawyer, Thomas Moskal. You can find my website, lasvegascriminallawyer.com, lasvegascriminallawyer.com, uh, 848-5555. If you ever need a consultation, anything like that, you can give me a call. 
Uh, I do practice primarily criminal defense here in town. Uh, and, you know, I always like to end every show with a little quote that kind of I have a lot of life changing quotes that I, that I keep a hold of. And I'll just turn to something random here. But let me see. Um, oh, here's one. This is my father used to say this to me. My father, Nelson Moskal, rest in peace. Um, and so this is when somebody would say, oh, just give it some time. Like, let's just give it some time. It'll, or somebody would say, it'll blow over. He always said the same thing, and it stuck with me after these years. And he said, he's like, uh, yeah, let's just give it some time. Maybe it'll blow over. It'll get better. You know, that's what Edward III said in 1337 when he usurped the French crown. And that led to the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, remember that, everybody. Nothing blows over. Sometimes you have to confront things head on in life and kind of like uh, communicate and get things done on that way. Uh, I always thought that was, you know, I went back and researched his saying on that. And he's right. You know, Edward III, he did usurp the French crown. He just said, hey, it's mine. And they were at war for a hundred years. A hundred years. It did not blow over. And uh, look for um, everybody out there who might be going through a hard time. You might be having some anxiety. Uh, You're trying to find some peace of mind. Um, Ask yourself, what is your ideal day? What would it look like? If you were going to have the most perfect day in the world, what does your ideal day look like? And then plan to have it. Plan a day to have that ideal day, whatever it is, from morning when you wake up till at night when you lay your head down. And that goes for life too. You know, that's something I'm trying to do. This is a question we don't ask ourselves and we never get asked, but you need to ask yourself this question and you need to try and answer this question and you're not going to be able to do it in one sitting. But if everything fell into place for you, everything in life fell into place just how you would want it, more perfect than you could ever imagine, what would that look like? What would it look like? If you actually answer that question yourself, you'd be surprised. You could make a lot of that stuff look like that way sooner than you think. Maybe almost immediately. And within a few years, if you really put your mind to it to make your life look like that, it's going to look like that. But you got to answer the question first. You got to know what you're striving towards. And so I leave everybody else with that. Have an ideal day. Figure out what that is. Have one. And then start having more of those and figure out what the ideal life looks like as far as what your daily, monthly schedule, what you would be doing looks like. And start having those things fall into place because you can't make them fall into place unless you know where that place is. Again, I'm Thomas Mosco, LasVegasCriminalLawyer.com, 702-848-5555. Thanks for uh, joining into the show. And, um, you know, somebody just said, what about Hunter? Anything to see there? I don't talk a lot of Hunter Biden on this show, uh, but there is a guy you can tune into on 107.1 and 1400. He'll love to talk to you about it. Brian Shapiro, Monday through Friday, noon to two. You call him up with a Hunter Biden question, he'll be happy to talk to you about it. Uh, I have no idea what's on the laptop, and frankly, I don't care what's on the laptop. I don't. So if you have a crime here in Las Vegas, you have an arrest, you have a family member, you need some information, give me a call. Look, I'm not the cheapest guy in town to go with, but I will give you the most high-quality representation. And at the very least, I'll give you some information over the phone. So until next week, we're here every Sunday at noon for an hour, and I'll see you next time. This is the Dread Law Show. Bye.